1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I've mentioned to you today, we're starting a new sermon series on 1 John, which is one of three letters that are historically attributed to the Apostle John. Now, like many books in the New Testament, there's no official citation in the book itself telling us that, but historically that is what has been assumed and um, has always been kind of relied upon as, uh, as something that's trustworthy historically. Now, of these three letters, we're just considering the first letter, which is the longest and the most theological. And to clear one thing up that was hard for me, I I was a teenager before I realized that John the writer and John the Baptist were two different people. So, I don't want you to fall into that same track. In fact, I'm a little bit embarrassed to, to admit it to you and can be confusing, but John the Baptist was beheaded before he had opportunity to write anything. And John the Apostle is usually considered to be the last living of the Apostles and is historically considered to have penned the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and also Revelation. Now, anytime we consider a letter in the New Testament, many theologians, it's a a long-standing quip of biblical theology to say that essentially you're reading other people's mail. And what we mean by that is we don't know nearly as much as we would like to about the context, the issues that John is trying to address, the story that's led up to the writing of the letter. And so we have to kind of peer into the letter itself and take certain clues to try to understand what was going on in the situation. And very broadly, we'll get more into this in a minute, but just so that you have the big picture, even as we begin considering uh, John's letter, is that there's a certain group within one of John's churches. Now, we should back up even a little bit further. It's really interesting when you consider the New Testament because you really have different strands that come out from the apostolic ministry of those who were under Jesus' leadership. So you have those churches that are planted by Peter, those churches that are planted by Paul, those churches that are planted by John, and in some ways, too, you have the ministry of whoever wrote Hebrews. And in each of these books or letters, you have different emphases. Different things are going on in the church. Uh, Each writer, even you know from their writing, had different priorities and things that they were communicating. And so each church begins to wrestle with certain things. Now, the Gospel of John is by far the most theological, the most philosophical, borrowing philosophical terminology from the Hellenistic world. And inevitably, what it produced was a church that was probably oriented in that way, And within the church, a group started to read John's gospel slightly differently and started to emphasize uh, different aspects of the book and really came up with a new theology about Jesus. The church fights, and uh, this group leaves or secedes uh, from John's church. 
And so John then writes to both encourage the believers who are in the church, who have stayed, but also to hold those who have left accountable in the sense of holding their theology up to examination. And so this is what John is trying to accomplish in his letter. And what we see really is that a false Christology can produce a false ethic. Now that might sound fancy. Christology is just a word for our doctrine of Jesus. All right, what we believe about who Jesus was and what he did and what he accomplished. And if you go wrong with Jesus, then inevitably you're not going to have a lot of decent places to go. Right? Your ethic, the way you act, the priorities you choose in your life will be out of alignment because your doctrine of Jesus is out of alignment. And that's exactly what we see happening with the false church. Right? We realize that ideas are important and ideas shape the way that we behave. We can even learn that from history. Do you struggle with any stomach issues? Well, if you did in the 1700s, what might have been prescribed for you is a tobacco enema, which is exactly what it sounds like. A tube would be placed up your backside, and the doctor would light his pipe and would proceed to blow smoke, from which we get a rather colorful phrase right, in the English language. I'm a little bit thankful every day that I don't live in the 1700s. In the medieval ages, fairies were thought to be hiding around all kinds of corners, and they thought, were thought to steal babies. But if they stole your baby, they would put a changeling in its place. So medieval people struggled with the notion, is this really my baby, or is it a changeling? Well, do you know how to tell the difference? You drop a shoe in a pot of soup. Why? Because it's funny. And a changeling will laugh as where a baby won't laugh at something random. They haven't developed that skill yet. How many shoes were lost to a pot of soup in the medieval period because of false ideas? In 1946, Dr. Walter Freeman developed a procedure for those experiencing mental health issues in which he took an ice pick and jabbed it in a person's eye socket and moved it around, attempting to separate the emotional areas of the brain. Unsurprisingly, this was not very effective and usually led to paralysis, brain bleeds, and permanent disability. And in the 1700s, again, if you had indigestion or suffered from gout, what you would take is a certain kind of gin, but not just gin. The gin then was about 80% alcohol by volume, and then it was watered down with turpentine and uh, also uh, with sulfuric acid. It was loaded with sugar to cover up the taste. It was super effective in curing you of anything because it usually killed you. Right? Ideas matter. They have particular consequences for us when they shape our behavior. And so this is the question that John takes up in the face of the secessionists, of the false church that is left, is who's thinking rightly about Jesus? We know the answer to that, not just from the answers to that question, but also from how you're behaving. Right? We can look at one's ethic, and one's ethic is going to reveal if we're really believing the right things about Jesus. Right? We can work backwards from what someone is doing. And so I want to do, we, we have a bit of ground to cover, right? Opening a sermon series is always a little bit tricky, because we have to understand the context of the book as a whole, even as we start to get into the opening of John's letter. So I want to consider a little bit more detail the context as a whole, and then we'll jump into the first four verses. So a little bit more about what's going on. 
Well, I've told you that some have left the church. How do we know that? Well, if you look at 1 John 2, 18 and 19, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Now, John is not going to be afraid to use strong language related to those who have left. In fact, here we see he calls them Antichrist. But what he's saying is they've gone out from us, which is actually good because it's proving that they are not of us. That's the separation in the church. Well, who were they? What were they thinking, and why did they decide they had to leave John's other disciples and separate and follow their own theology? John is going to tell us about the false teaching. Right? I told you that we were reading someone else's mail. So when John takes issue with a particular thought, we presume he's responding to some of the teaching of the false teachers. And so where does he take uh, issue with some of their thoughts? Well, in 1 John 2.23, he writes, No one who denies the Son has the Father. So the false church was denying that Jesus was God's Son. In 1 John 4.2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Okay, so first we see that they're denying that Jesus is the Son of God, but here we, saying, we see that they're denying that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. Now, hold the, we'll explain these, but hold them in your mind as we go forward. In 1 John 2.22, he writes, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So again, we see that the false church is now denying that Jesus is the Christ. So he's not the Son of God. He doesn't come in flesh. And he's not the Christ. What's going on here? Well, it seems like the false church is nuancing and playing with the divinity of Jesus. And as we were... We don't have anything uh, surviving in writing from those John was responding to. But we do have things that survive from a little bit later period, and they probably are the fuller fruition of what's going on here in John's letter. In other words, some Christians, everyone's living in the Hellenistic world, right? the Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, most people believe that there was a pantheon of gods, and the gods weren't equal. You had some huge, big, super powerful gods, and then you had lesser gods, and then you had demigods, right? And so some of the Christians probably took Jesus and started to insert him into the Hellenistic pantheon. Say, Jesus is fine, he's special, he can exist somewhere in there. But as part of this, what they seemed to also do was to say, but Jesus can't, or God, who, um, if Jesus is a god, or the better way to do this is to say Jesus in terms of the human being and Christ in terms of the God aspect of Jesus. And so they would say that Christ cannot really have suffered and died because gods don't suffer and die. It's not something that could happen to them. So what must have happened is that Jesus was a real human born to Mary and Joseph. The Christ spirit, the spirit of God, descended upon him in his baptism in the form of a dove equipped him for his ministry, but the Christ had to depart before the cross and death. 
because no god could go through crucifixion and death. That's not what deities do. And so do you see now what they're doing? They're starting to separate the two, what we would call now, the two natures of Jesus. And his human nature becomes less. His spiritual nature becomes elevated. And what's going to be true of these heresies is that spiritual things get elevated and the physical nature gets put down. Right? So physical things are thought as base. Um, lots of these groups would have even said that um, refrain from, from intimacy between a man and a woman because it was seen as something that was physical and base and evil. And what they tried to do was liberate their spirituality, right, to become aware. And so what this is going to give birth to ultimately are things like Gnosticism, which you don't need to know what that is, but Gnostics believed in this super spiritual knowledge or secret spiritual knowledge that would release someone to truly be kind of alive, and to Docetism, which is another heresy which said, actually, there's not three gods, there's just one. He keeps changing clothes, right? Sometimes he's God the Father, sometimes he's God the Son, sometimes he's God the Holy Spirit, but it's the same God, there aren't three. Right? So these are the things that are going to grow out of what John is responding to uh, in his epistle. But what you need to see here is that they're separating the divinity and humanity of Jesus, right? that Christ and Jesus are something that is separate, and that the physical will be less than the spiritual. All right. Now, we've said that not only are they thinking wrongly about Jesus, but that wrong thinking is going to produce a bad ethic or wrong behavior. So how do we see that? In 1 John 1, 8 and 10, the false church boasts that they are without sin. They believe in a form of perfectionism. In 1 John 1, 6, the false church boasts about their fellowship with God, but John says they actually walk in darkness. In 1 John 2, 4, the false church boasts of how they know God, but John says they're disobedient. And in 1 John 4, 20, the false church boasts of their love for God, but you know who they don't love? According to John, is their brothers and sisters. And what John is going to say, essentially, is that the false church are hypocrites. They say they have knowledge of God, but their knowledge of God does not produce any fruit. They say they boast of their closeness of God, they boast of their knowledge of God, but they don't even love their brothers and sisters. And it's their lack of obedience that's going to reveal the fault lines in their Christology and their understanding of who Jesus is. And John will say that the Spirit is essential to lead us into right thinking about Jesus so that we might then produce a real ethic, or a right ethic. Okay, let's start to see now how some of this is playing out even in John's opening. He's not going to waste a word. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. And I want you to hear, I'll emphasize it, but hear how John is emphasizing the physical, real nature of Jesus. Um, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Right? Do you see how John is going out of his way to emphasize that the Jesus he's speaking of was physical and tangible, and he touched them, and he walked with them, and he heard what he had to say, and he watched them heal. 
Now in this, uh, John is doing at least two things. One is he's, he's kind of setting his authority. Right? I have firsthand knowledge of Jesus. You, my disciples breaking away, do not. And there's a big difference. I was in a staff meeting on Friday, and there was a point in the staff meeting which, in which we commemorated 9-11. And people were going around and sharing where they were and what they were doing and, and how they processed the news of hearing about 9-11 at the time. And it was going around the circle, and it came to some of the younger people in the group. And they said things to the effect of, well, I was in preschool on 9-11, and was it told about uh, 9-11 until some years later after it happened. My parents decided to wait to let me know what had occurred. What was funny, in some ways, um, as the conversation developed, was a number of people are watching, particularly the young people, were watching the National Geographic documentary, uh, One Day in America, which is a documentary on the 9-11 event. And they, uh, they seem, or they feel like they are filled uh, with knowledge now of 9-11. And so it proceeded into a conversation of, hey, did you know there was another plane that the passengers brought down? And did you know that the terrorists were here and were trained and people alerted the FBI, but no, nobody caught it? And question after question, in which I you know, was played, but eventually you feel like saying, yeah, I know, I was there. I actually lived through 9-11. I lived in New York and happened to be in Philadelphia at the time that it happened, but was pretty intimately connected as we were attending a church in New York City at the time, right? Knowledge that comes through a documentary is never going to be the same as somebody who lives through something and experiences it firsthand. Do you want somebody who's aced every test they've ever taken in medical school to perform surgery on you, or someone who's performed that surgery successfully 500 times? It's the latter. This is what John is saying is, to his disciples, you have some knowledge, but your knowledge will never be the same as walking and talking and sitting and being loved by Jesus in the flesh. And the other thing that John is doing is stressing the importance of the physicality of Jesus. Now, this is actually very remarkable because the church is fledgling. There's no New Testament at this time. There's no authoritative book to refer to. Right? It's just the apostles' teaching in the churches, and it's going to take 200 years to work out the theology of the dual nature of Christ, that he is both fully human and fully divine. But the reason that we got to work it out was because of what John is writing here, among other things. That he stresses, from the beginning has been the Logos, the Word. And the Logos and the Word was real flesh and blood. And John will teach us, right, and will put the church on the right track, Right, that Jesus had to be both human and divine to carry out the task that was assigned to him. And so this is the first thing that we see John stressing. Right? Not only his firsthand knowledge of the physicality of Christ, but also the importance of the physicality of Christ. Now the second thing he says is the reason this is important is why. Look at verse 3. What's John's intent here? That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John's priority is not simply to depart right knowledge so that he can be proven true, or so that he can punish those who have left, but so that he might promote the fellowship of the church. And that fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. The word that we translate fellowship is koinonia in Greek. And it carries 
It's more pregnant in meaning than simply saying fellowship. Right? Sometimes we think of fellowship and say, oh, if I go out for a cup of coffee or sit down with some friends in the church, that that's fellowship. Now, that's really important. But it's not fellowship in the sense that the New Testament uses the word. Fellowship or koinonia in the New Testament is not simply a feeling about a common cause. It's not just agreement about teaching and theology. It's a partnership of experience. Right? John is saying that I want, you've experienced Jesus, the risen Christ, and we have experienced the risen Christ, and I'm inviting you into the shared experience of that, that we might be built into a community that is unlike any on earth. This is the heart of uh, fellowship, that, that there would play a place, which is the church, in which we talk about our experience of Jesus with one another, that we urge one another to grow in our experience of Jesus, and that we discover how to build that shared life in the experience of Jesus, that we might reflect Jesus to the world. Fellowship, in the New Testament sense, is really beautifully kind of pictured in this illustration that I was reminded of this week, a lesser-known aspect of 9-11, but some of you may remember it, was the maritime rescue that occurred for those people who were stranded on the southern tip of Manhattan. In fact, it was the largest maritime rescue in the history of the world. Once the, the second plane hit uh, the second tower, it became people began to realize, oh, this wasn't an accident, this is a terrorist attack. And so the subways came to a screeching halt. All the tunnels in and out of Manhattan were closed. Most of the bridges were closed. Now, six million people commute in and out of Manhattan every day. Most had commuted in, and now we're stranded, you know, probably millions of people in downtown Manhattan. The only options you had that morning were to either walk north up the island of Manhattan or to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, which was open to pedestrian traffic only. And so you had this massive sea of humanity stranded as uh, you know, the dust and the, the collapse was billowing through lower Manhattan. So the Coast Guard sent out the call that all, all boats who are available, any captain who's willing to come and to help. And they said, people who were there at the time said that the marinas around Manhattan and Jersey and Brooklyn, Long Island, emptied. And 150 boats proceeded to the tip of, well, they were said, told to gather at Governor's Island, which is just like 800 meters off the tip of Manhattan, and they began ferrying people you know, for the rest of the day and moved about 500,000 people out of harm's way, either to New Jersey or to Brooklyn. Right? And that's a picture of fellowship. Right? It's a people who are in the midst of a shared experience, and out of that shared experience decide to take action together and to collaborate towards a common goal. And that's what the church should look like, that we're captured by a shared experience in Jesus Christ and by sharing that experience together with one another, then we are motivated toward a common goal. And that's why it's so important. You know, coffees for three in and of themselves are steak night. That's not fellowship, but it's essential to fellowship because it's a place where relationships form and we begin to have the relationships in which we share that experience and out of that experience then to decide on those common goals. So take advantage of all the offerings, both for women's fellowship and for men's fellowship, as we, uh, it's important for the life of the church, which John is going to tell us over and over again over the coming weeks, that we pr prioritize the relationships that we have in community, right? Both to encourage one another, to hold one another accountable, 
but also to proceed laboring together, right? holding one another's backs in terms of uh, pushing toward the goal of investing in the kingdom here. All right. I feel like that's a lot. Right? We took the whole context of John's first letter, right? all the things going on with the, the heretical people who have left and the nature of that. Then we started to consider his opening in which John is stressing the physicality of Jesus and stressing his firsthand knowledge of Jesus and saying the goal of what he's doing is to build up the fellowship of the church. So I want to wind down, but the question still outstanding and remaining for us is what in the world does this have to do with us? Do you know anybody who's questioning the dual nature of Jesus? I, personally, I don't in the church, right? Certainly we can find that culturally. But it raises the larger question for us, in what ways is our thinking about Jesus out of line? In what ways, in ways perhaps we're not even paying close attention, are we not really thinking clearly about the person and work of Christ, and so our Christology is a little out of whack, and as a result, our ethic is even more out of whack? So here are a few questions to preview what we'll, we'll be considering in the coming weeks. When we pursue our toys and fun and forever house, do we know the Jesus who says to the rich young man, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When we encounter suffering and think it is Jesus' job to take it from us, do we, facing whatever, do we remember the words of Jesus who, when he was facing a horrific future himself and untold suffering himself, prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When we are thinking of punishing those who have hurt us, do we remember the words of Jesus who teaches, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when celebrating grace and forgiveness and reminding ourselves that Jesus has done everything on our behalf, do we remember it was Jesus who said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Is the Jesus that you're worshiping the Jesus who's presented in the Gospels? And if not, then in what ways are the way that you're living out of accord with the Jesus who's actually given to us in God's revelation? The one other concluding thought that has stuck with me as I've considered this passage this week is this notion of the false church who didn't want a suffering God. That was below someone who had the stature of deity. And frankly, in some ways, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around because living on this side of the resurrection and on this side of 2,000 years of theology, I desperately want and need a God who is willing to suffer on my behalf for two reasons. One, that my God understands the plight that I'm in, that he has walked through it. So when I go to him, I'm not speaking to someone who has no idea what suffering is, but is intimately connected with what suffering is and can, can sympathize with me in whatever's going on in my life. And not only that, but he redeems my suffering. He shows me that even though he didn't want to drink that cup, he proceeds to be obedient to the Father 
and goes through the cross. And on the other side of the cross is resurrection. And on the other side of our cross, whatever it may be, there is resurrection too. Recently, I had a a friend, uh, well, we haven't been in touch in a long time, but he was my best friend growing up. He'd gone through a kidney transplant a long time ago and recently died of, of transplant cancer. At least four kids, I think roughly between the ages of, of 13 and 20, who are not a little bit angry at God for God having allowed uh, their father uh, to be taken. Now, if I go down the road of the false teachers, there's nothing I can do with that. In fact, if I go down the road of most of secular humanism, that's just a bad draw, and there's nothing you can do about it. But if I go down the road of John's Christology and understand that Jesus is both human and divine and his suffering is very real and suffering can be redemptive, I can believe that that's not the end of that family's story. And it's not the friend, end of my friend's story either, right? Who celebrates in ways I can't conceive of now in the presence of Christ. Right? And the, the faith, the, the opportunity for hope that God will make the story for those kids and his widow come to a good conclusion as well. This is the hope that John gives to us, and it's the hope that we'll immerse ourselves in in the coming of weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, uh, goodness, if you had just dropped down in the person of Jesus and then left and not given us uh, the scriptures of the New Testament, it's hard not to imagine that we would have gone in all kinds of errant directions. And so we thank you for John's teaching and for the teaching of the New Testament, that we can take stock. It's easy to make you into the Jesus we want you to be. But you challenge us through John uh, to, to come to the Jesus that is offered uh, in the stories of the Gospels and in the teachings of the Apostles. So we pray that we would be mindful to, to check our Christology and make sure we know the Jesus we're worshiping so that our, our behavior, our ethic, um, our obedience might be real and might be good for us. Because we know if we pursue an ethic that's not informed by who Christ is, that that ultimately won't be good for us. We praise you and thank you this morning. We pray that you continue to forge us into the new people of God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.